This is another episode of On the Grid by Z Prime. Love your energy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a bonus episode of Z Prime On the Grid. I'm Dylan Lockwood. Uh, Aaron Hardick, my co-host, is here as well. How's it going, Aaron? Doing well, Dylan. The sun is shining today, so I'm pretty happy. It was actually shining maybe too much because it made my laptop too hot, causing some <laughs> technical difficulties at the beginning of the episode, but it has since cooled down and I'm ready to chat with our reoccurring guest. Yeah, I'm envious. It's uh, raining here, which also would ruin my laptop if I took it outside, so I'm inside. And uh, yeah, as you just mentioned, we've got Dr. Carolyn Kassan from NYU. Welcome back. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dylan. Thank you, Aaron. I appreciate the uh, the invitation to uh, to come back. And you know, since our last conversation, uh, lots of lots of developments in the uh, in the energy space, especially in our world of oil. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's I mean, that's the the main reason why we wanted to have you back is because of all the oil news this week coming right after we published our. Uh, our last conversation with you about uh, a growing oil conflict between Russia and Saudi Arabia that the U.S. was kind of dancing around the edges of and definitely was feeling the effects of and certainly is now. So, uh, but, so but just before we get into the pertinent uh, United States stuff, what's developed with Russia and Saudi Arabia since our last recording? Probably the biggest development was that they kind of came back to the table, so to say, um, in that there was an agreement, an OPEC plus agreement for uh, a production cut of 9.7 million barrels a day, which is a historic production cut. We've never seen that that large of a cut. And it was an agreed upon cut between Saudi Arabia, members of OPEC and Russia and members of the OPEC plus group. Uh, and that happened, that agreement came to light on a Friday. And then over the weekend, there was uh, an emergency meeting of, you know, the G20. And again, you know, oil was a major sort of point in those discussions. And then there was, you know, more cut that came from um, other countries. But again, sort of the number that many people focused on and have been focusing on um, is the 9.7 from OPEC+. Plus. But with the IEA also um, committing to purchasing about 200 million barrels, um, some of the numbers that were floating around was that the cut was almost up to 19 million. But I think there's a little bit of a kind of a misnomer there. But the actual committed cut was um, was 9.7 from OPEC plus. But even since that um, that agreement, um, there are talks that. The United that Russia and Saudi Arabia will make deeper cuts because the cuts that have been made um, one are not enough to meet the demand shortfall. So if we just think about April, we are talking about about 29 million barrels a day of reduced demand. So the 9.7 production cut from OPEC plus isn't enough to sort of bring the market back, kind of give some, give some buoyancy to the price. Again, there are lots of sort of big issues right now in terms of how countries are being forced 
to reduce production because literally there's no place for that production to go. We are nearing capacity in, in storage. This is global storage. Um, and, you know, again, kind of to reiterate that number of, um, of 29 million, that's almost, you know, 30% of global demand, which is down. And even some people think it's actually larger, that it's more in the 35, potentially 40 million barrel a day range, uh, which, again, is, you know, something we've never seen before. And, you know, there's a big question as to will there be kind of a snapback effect um, as economies start to reopen and we will, will we see sort of a, uh, an uptick in that demand. One issue that I think is really important to emphasize is our really oversupplied market. And we are so deeply oversupplied and we are, you know, reaching capacity in terms of storage, both in the United States as well as globally, that even as we see that eventual demand um, uptick, we're still going to need to sort of wind down on that storage before we start to see, you know, maybe a return to prices in the in the 40s or even in the 50s. So, but if, if the if that snapback does in fact happen, then maybe the world will be thankful that they stockpiled, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, in terms of the longer term over the next, you know, next two quarters, for example, you know, we're probably going to see lower for longer oil prices just because of that, you know, excess supply that we have available that's that's in storage. So as a, you know, I think it's fair to say that we are in a global recession. So we will be looking at, um, I think, you know, lower for longer oil prices probably through, um, through 2021 and start to see probably some sometime in you know uh, first or second quarter of 2021 um, a possible sort of change in the demand picture but much of that will will depend on you know how quickly economies can restart and you know what their demand picture will look like in a post covid world Caroline the this really hits close to home. I mean, this is clearly a global issue, a national issue, but in, you know, Texas in particular, it's a very big statewide issue. And I was watching a local news uh, broadcast yesterday with the governor, Greg Abbott, on, and he was calling on the president to um, stop importing from Saudi Arabia, saying that it's further hurting the Texas market because of the lack of storage available. So can you kind of talk about the lack of storage in combination with the negative pricing that happened this week and kind of what that means? Yeah, because I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of people who are, you know, used to just shopping retail, because that's how most of us engage in the world, have a, might have a hard time understanding what a negative price on a commodity actually means. Yeah. And by the way, most of us were really, 
having a hard time understanding the negative pricing for WTI that happened as a commodity. It's not the first time that we've had a commodity go into negative territory. I heard a talk last night with the CEO of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange where WTI is traded. And, you know, he was sort of saying that it's not, you know, many people have been saying this is, you know, it's unprecedented. And yes, it's unprecedented for oil, but not necessarily for, you know, um, the commodities picture. But for WTI, what we saw happen in a very short period of time is that, you know, we went from WTI being in the high teens to WTI May, the May contract. So it's very, really important to kind of understand that this is, you know, we're talking about future contracts, that the May contract went to negative $37 a barrel, which again, just try to understand this. It's, it's really challenging. And many traders had never experienced that level of such deep decline for a contract. And one of the things that is important is that oftentimes contracts will roll over. So the May contract will roll over into the June contract. But part of one of the big issues as to why this became such a kind of is, again, we were just hitting the expiration date for the May contract is that there were a lack of delivery options. So, uh, and this goes back to the storage issue and in Cushing, Oklahoma, for example, um, storage was, um, was pretty much almost at capacity and what was still available was either owned or leased. So you could, buyers of that had this contract couldn't actually find a place for that oil. So, um, and that's what took it down into, in terms of the negative store uh, territory. You have this collapse, collapse in demand and you have a supply gut and you have this absolute, you know, constriction and around what, what kind of storage was available. So there's a question now, I mean, we're not that that the June contract for WTI is now trading at $17 a barrel. So we, you know, quickly moved from a negative priced contract to a positive price contract. Uh, so that's also important to sort of recognize. Um, and there's a, I guess, a, an ongoing question as to, you know, what will happen when the June contract is coming up for expiration in a little under a month's time in terms of whether or not we will see this return to this negative territory or whether or not this was kind of like a lesson and we are going to sort of manage that the period going up to the expiration of the June contract um, and whether there might be some controls over um, over the trading of the contract so that we wouldn't have that happen. And we're talking about, I mean, if you're looking at the numbers of contracts, we're talking about about 130,000 contracts that were Whoa. up for it. If you were following it, you know, people were joking about, well, you know, I have a, I have a, I have a, um, a swimming pool, you know, you can fill my swimming pool up with oil in terms of finding storage. This idea that, you know, you could buy a barrel of oil for, you know, it was cheaper than anything else. Um, but again, that was, you know, it was a, it was a short-lived period where we had the, that negative pricing. Um, I do think there's big, big questions for Texas. Um, so part of the, you know, you have issues 
specific to Cushing, Oklahoma, which is, you know, a very important hub for uh, U.S. Um, U.S. oil and some challenges around pipelines, which also created some of the um, some of the difficulties in terms of um, of, you know, finding a home for oil. And again, this sort of lack going back to my uh, point about lack of delivery options. But, you know, John Kemp, who is a oil analyst at Reuters, you know, he's recently said that Texas probably needs to reduce production by three to five million barrels a day. And that's a lot, right? That's a, I should say U.S. oil production. But since the majority of U.S. oil production is coming out of Texas, um, you know, and part of that is what makes it hard is we're already seeing shut-ins and those shut-ins are, you know, happening because there's really, there are no buyers and because they can't move the oil. And I think Saudi Arabia basically assumed that because it, you know, it has money to spend and that it would have easier access to storage in also storage here in the United States. And so, you know, we did see like a tanker that was basically not allowed to, you know, sort of offload its oil to put into storage. Um, so, you know, Saudi Arabia going back to March when it decided to, you know, flood the market, right? So it went from, you know, kind of the, the OPEC plus deal sort of ending in um, kind of in a disaster to within 48 hours, you know, Saudi Arabia increasing its production mm -hmm. by over 2 million barrels a day. And then they started to, to sort of lease tankers and this idea that they would put this, um, their oil on tankers and they would buy storage. But some of that is now being, um, they can't get access to storage. And that's part of the kind of going back to Aaron's question about sort of Saudi oil coming in um, and our own, our own exports are significantly down so, for example, if we just look at current exports, we last week we exported 4.9 million barrels a day, which, you know, in comparison to five weeks ago, we were exporting 6.5 million barrels a day. So, you know, we just have this, you know, challenge in terms of U.S. production and where it can go. So not only can we not export as much as we were prior to the COVID lockdown, but we also, um, you know, don't have enough storage capacity in the United States. So producers are being forced to shut down um, a lot of production. As the story progresses, as, uh, you know, things continue to shift and people start to think about what recovery is going to look like, what are some of the trends? What are some of the important uh aspects you're going to be looking at? What, what are going to be some telling signs you're looking for? Yeah. So, you know, one, I guess, you know, the first big country to kind of start to reopen is China. So, you know, China has, uh, China has already issued a date. So after this upcoming May holiday, um, which is next weekend, uh, it's kind of Labor Day in China, that the schools will reopen. And in Shanghai and Beijing, malls have reopened. Coal production is up to about 90% capacity. 
We're actually seeing more cars on the road in China um, post-COVID, the post-COVID period in China than pre. And part of that is fear of taking public transportation. So you are seeing more, more cars. I think there's still sort of the challenge around air travel. It's, you know, China is kind of a what something that we can be looking at to sort of see how quickly their oil demand starts to come back. But, you know, it is also important that we've seen an economic contraction in China. So just for, you know, this quarter, China's economic growth is down over six point over six percentage points. That's a lot. China normally year on year um, has six to seven percent um, uh, growth. So, yeah, I think a lot of it is going to depend on, you know, one, what this sort of what a global reopening will look like, how quickly we can kind of get back to a kind of a, uh, a normalcy, um, how quickly we'll have, you know, air travel back. Um, you know, we've seen here U.S. airlines have really, you know, been hit hard. Um, how quickly people, you know, return to work. Um, what their consumptions pat what their consumption patterns will look like, um, but you know the bulk of U.S. oil consumption is in the transportation sector. You know we also have it in the petrochemicals and plastics. Uh, so there's a big kind of question mark as to you know what that new demand will be as, um, as, as countries, um, as countries reopen. But, you know, again, I think there's reason for concern that it's not going to be a quick snapback. Uh, and that again, that, you know, we'll, we will see this prolonged period of lower for longer. There is also an interesting question as to, you know, what the federal government may do. And, you know, one thing that kind of also in response to Aaron's earlier question about sort of Texas, Texas and, and producers in Texas in, in terms of whether or not the government will buy or pay some producers to, to keep their oil in the ground, right? Not to produce it. Part of that is a, you know, not part of an official stimulus package because the idea of the United States buying oil and putting it into the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserves was was knocked out of the uh, the first stimulus package. But you know, in terms of what the federal government may do in order to protect, you know, U.S. producers that you know are being. One analyst said it's a bloodbath. It's a really challenging situation. Uh, And, you know, maybe not on the most optimistic note, but current unemployment numbers with what's expected this week of kind of a new, a new, a new number of an additional 4 million people claiming um, seeking unemployment this just this week, you know, takes the overall U.S. um, unemployment numbers to almost the size of Texas. Um, that's something that I, you know, heard this morning in a in a talk, and that's, yeah, these are really frightening numbers. And again, this is going to have an impact on not just the U.S. economy but the global economy. So, you know, if the U.S. economy doesn't come back quickly, it's also going to impact China's economy as as kind of an exporter of goods. And they need markets for those goods. So, yeah, I wish I could be more optimistic. Yeah, the, and the idea of a the idea of a fast snapback just runs so counter 
to the to the China to the Chinese model because of you know there's decades of context surrounding economic growth as a political lifeblood for the for the communist for the communist party that runs it but that's a that's another episode so we the energy industry has been facing storage challenge for a while now but that conversation has been in the context of storing renewables but now we have a different type of storage problem which i don't think anybody could have predicted i mean i'm not sure how many people predicted the pandemic what was going to happen but it's really interesting the way that this conversation has shifted from being a renewable storage problem to now an oil storage problem so there's still this big question of storage in general yeah, absolutely, Erin. Again, and it's, you know, such a big part of, you know, the oil story here, not just, you know, in the United States, but globally. And I think what we just experienced with the, you know, the utter collapse, right, in terms of the the May contract for WTI, a lot of that, you know, kind of went back to that storage question. So it's an ongoing issue. And I think, you know, many people are looking for stronger management around, you know, production. So, you know, kind of having a supply manager so that, you know, we can better manage what our storage picture looks like and what our supply picture looks like so that we don't find ourselves in, you know, these types of situations where there's just like no place for um, for the oil to go. We'll have to see how that develops as things as things open up and look, uh, look to all of those signifiers you mentioned. Um, Dr. Kenny Kassan, I want to thank you once again for joining us. And if something if something else crazy happens, I'm sure we'll have you back on to to go over it again. <laughs> well, Aaron and Dylan, thank you so very much, and I appreciate so much of what um, what you all are doing and the information you're making available to your audiences. I'm sharing it with my classes and with my networks, and um, you know, you're just bringing sort of many of the really pertinent and uh, energy issues and, and questions that many people have in your setting light. So grateful for all the work you're doing. Well, we appreciate that. Thank you very much. Uh, and Aaron, thanks for uh, talking with us today and for all the for all the work you've been doing behind the scenes on all the on all that media Carolyn's talking about. Thank you, Dylan. Uh, you can find all that media along with our research at zprime.com. You can find us on social media at DY Lockwood, at Aaron Hardick, at zprime underscore research. Uh, just hope you're all continuing to stay safe out there. My name's Dylan. We'll see you all next time.